Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed Mike Solana. Mike is a vice president at Founders Fund, uh, and we talked a lot about narratives today and why some narratives win and some narratives lose, and how religion is taking on a new form um, for both the left and the right. Uh, and it's the religious battleground is now being played out online, and we're all in a 24-hour ideological warfare. Really interesting to have Mike on. He is definitely a um, not a conventional thinker, which I really appreciate. Um, and I hope you guys enjoy this episode. If you do and you like this type of content where you can find people with crazy wisdom like Mike, uh, then go ahead and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Uh, and if you really like this episode, please go ahead and give us a review. And uh, I'd really appreciate it. And also, I love to hear from my listeners on Twitter at Stuart Alsop III. Again, that's at Stuart Alsop III. Stuart is spelled S T E W A R T, Alsop A L S O P. Uh, I've got my DMs open. I'd love to hear from you about this episode or any of the ep- other episodes that I do. Have a great day. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here is Mike Solana. He is a vice president at Founders Fund, and really excited to have you on. All right. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, so we were talking a little bit before about kind of what you're most interested in these days, and it sounds like the narratives around uh, technology or the narratives around uh, around what's going on in the world right now uh, is, or in media is really interesting to you. Yeah, I, I've been, I think, really interested in the way that I think humans convey complex information through stories forever. I've always been really obsessed with storytelling. Um, college, I got more into it in a sort of, I guess, intellectual way. I started researching it a little more. Um, I like telling stories. Uh, but then when I got the gig at Founders Fund, uh, I met Peter about 11 years ago now. Um, I started thinking about the way that we tell stories in the realm of science and technology specifically. It's something that he cared about. I loved science fiction. I was writing science fiction at the time. And I had to kind of like look inward and um, address the, I guess, reasons that we tell certain stories the way that we do. Um, you know, for example, it's like in the world of genetic engineering, um, in the world of storytelling surrounding, uh, uh, on the topic of genetic engineering, there's not really been a single positive story out of Hollywood ever. Uh, it's all, Mm -hmm. it's all sort of disaster stuff. It's all in the realm of Jurassic Park. Um, and you have to ask why, like, what is that? What is, what is the, what is, what is the complex information being conveyed in these movies and then why? Uh, so yeah, I'm really, I'm really obsessed with that. I think I'm almost right now more obsessed with the way that we tell stories about science and technology than I am even about science and technology. <laughs> uh, so there's a couple of questions that come from that. One, uh, you might not be the best person to ask this, but I wonder what, how science fiction is displayed inside of, uh, I'm sorry, uh, genetic engineering is displayed inside the media in China uh, and how those media narratives in China. And then the other question I have is, how does one narrative win against other narratives? Well, first of all, it doesn't have to even be, uh, in terms of storytelling in China, it doesn't have to be a science fiction book. Like, your politicians are telling science fiction narratives uh-huh. when they endorse this or that technology. Um, your media is telling a science fiction narrative when they cover something like CRISPR. Uh, these things, we, we, don't, we don't yet know what the world of 
perfect genetic engineering is going to look like. So anytime anyone in the news speculates on it, that's science fiction. Uh, so in China, I would, uh, I would imagine they're a little more open to it um, just based on the fact that their culture is like clearly barreling ahead with the research. But yeah, like you said, I'm not an expert. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the U.S., uh, certainly the media broadly, um, you have politicians. Uh, just today, Boris Johnson, I saw this video of Boris Johnson going off on technology. <laughs> Um, like really wild shit. I mean, it was like a crazy, breathless, like Philip K. Dick novel level uh, monologue on the sort of coming apocalypse that Silicon Valley is creating for the world. Um, so it's interesting. It's like these stories are coming from the populist right. They're coming from the populist left. They're coming from the media, which I would say is the elite left, the sort of uh, elite class or upper class left. Um, it's coming from academia. Uh, it's coming from almost every direction, mm. and it's uh, really concerning to me. Mm. How likely it is it, do you think that we will start to see these narratives start to affect how much science and technology is actually done? Well, I think it already has. Uh, you can see that in genetic engineering, certainly. You have mass cultural um, aversion to genetic engineering right now, and it's sort of growing in weird ways. So you have... Uh, you have the left, political left, which has always been very like almost it's what started as a sort of like fetishism for the natural world. I think it's become an almost like religious obsession with the natural world. But you also have this kind of new neo Ludditeism happening um, on, I guess you would call it the right from Nassim Taleb. He, he feels like like an intellectual kind of like sort of culturally right type person talking about yeah ludism and um i i think that all of these like this sort of like the whole spectrum is it's like anti-gmo um it is anti-genetic engineering um before the germline it's anti-gene therapy in many cases uh, but that's just and that's that's really just that's just biology you have this elsewhere as well i mean we're seeing it right now with vaping uh which is a technology right um you have uh, Rashida Taleb uh, yesterday going off on the evils of this, uh, saying one secondhand smoke is worse for you than smoking. That's just like mm. like laughably absurd. It's not true. Uh, and then two, um, she had a real almost like hysterical reaction to the assertion that vaping was one better for you than smoking cigarettes, and two could help people actually quit smoking. Um, and I was kind of like what is it this is because to me you know is nicotine good for you no do we want lots of people to be addicted to nicotine absolutely not but is vaping better than smoking cigarettes it seems like yes uh we're talking about these people who are sick right now um it's really unclear what this small very 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 small fraction of the people who have been vaping are getting sick because of like what's causing that but what we certainly know um is that this is like just way better for you than smoking cigarettes so why would somebody be so uh angry about this why in san francisco have we banned vapes and not and not cigarettes <laughs> what is what is the reason behind that like if they can do that if they really have that much power which by the way is crazy if they have that much power why wouldn't they ban cigarettes yeah. and it's be it's because of this um i think it's because of this well, it's two things. One, it's identity-based, and uh, tobacco is associated with the populist right. Technology, so like uh, vape, is associated with the uh, technological sort of, I would say, left. But both of those things are at odds with 
San Francisco, the uh, San Francisco Board of Supervisors brand of politics, which is a much more populist, like hippie left. Mm. Um, so it's identity based. They just hate the they hate a vape because it represents these two things that they these two groups of people that they hate. But um, the technology piece, I think, is much stronger. It's like a real it's a real distrust of technology right now. It's like you see it in everything from a distrust of. Facebook and Google and Palantir to, you know, a distrust of vaping, to a distrust of genetically modified organisms. It's like broad and it's deeply entrenched in our culture. And why do you think it is? Um, I think that uh, the atom bomb really started changing the way that the West thinks about technology. It was really, really terrifying. Um, We kind of looked at that and for the first time ever, we were like, oh, uh, dystopia is something that we could create that like or apocalypse rather is something that we could create it's not necessarily something that the natural world will just do to us or God will just do to us uh, we could do it to ourselves that was scary then the narratives just sort of took off from there like we started telling these nightmare versions of our of our story to ourselves like these spooky bedtime stories that kind of metastasized and now it's like we're we're stewing in it. Science fiction and the way that we talk about the future in our sort of roughly science nonfiction stories, uh, so the news-ish, um, really took a dark turn, I think, after after uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, that's when it like kind of began. People talk about like the 50s and the 60s as a bright spot. I don't really know that that's true. I think it's like the 50s and the 60s in science fiction um, they were bright, but it, but that it, it was like it it just took a minute for the for for the tide to to fully turn. Like the, the seeds were already planted, um, and it just got I think it got worse and worse. I think uh, when we had a couple of nuclear disasters, it uh, nuclear power plant disasters, um, those are just like really really frightening stories, and it got it got even worse. But like nuclear broadly is probably the thing. The fear of nuclear war and during the Cold War was really scary to people. Um, and it just, I think that's where it began. But we find we find boogeymen under every bed now. Mm. And I think that's just, that's just about, that's just nothing more than the way that, that we are, are looking at. It's just a frame that we've put on the whole thing. And uh, so two things come from that. How much of that has been influenced by these rise of new media platforms, for example, Facebook and Twitter, and how much you know, of our news are coming from that? And then the other thing is uh, AI as this kind of super boogeyman. Uh, what is the deal with that? Right. Um, well, I think that social media has definitely um, exacerbated this problem tremendously. Not just the problem of the way, like the sort of science fiction stories that we tell about the world. Um, the thing about social media is it's it's quite clearly driven just by polarizing content. So, what do you do to succeed on social media? You after you you either have to be ex- extremely divisive. Or um, you have to be sensational. You have to be um, either terrifying people mm-hmm. or making them laugh like that they could never laugh before. Or you can you can make them ins- you can make them feel inspired. But inspiration is extremely hard. That's the hardest one. Mm-hmm. That's that actually takes a lot of thought and um, like soul that you're putting into it. Uh, you're using your charisma to persuade someone into your into your world. Like no one wants no one wants to do that. We're like almost <laughs> I think probably like Darwin. Like it's like evolution has trained us like 
not to change. It's yeah. just it's it's so much energy and a lot of the ways that you can change are dangerous. So it's there's like a lot of risk there, and there are yeah there are these potential rewards. But I think that we're kind of geared to 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 be to be conserving energy, and yeah, just I think change is really exhausting. So you can do that, and that is that would generate you know a lot of clicks if you had a really incredible, compelling. Um, tweet storm that was inspiring people, but uh, it's much easier just to scare them. Yeah. Um, it's much easier to prey on the fears they already have, uh, and that is what people are doing. And, and so yeah, pulp, social media is just this this like misery engine at this point, um, because people know that's how they can make money. So certainly the media, I mean, you have this ad revenue model, and that plus social media where polarizing, uh, polarizing content is the, the one that sells or the, one the that only has. thing that, that drives clicks is like, just a recipe for disaster. The fact that we're not talking about this every single day while living inside of it is crazy. Like we live on the internet now. Mm -hmm. um, we should be addressing the fact that it is absolutely toxic. And it seems like that there is there is probably a small percentage of people who are actually like learning things and don't get caught in that trap of outrage and everything like that. Would you agree that there is some part of the population that does? That is yeah, I think there's a, there's just a popular part of the po population that tries. I try. I don't I don't always succeed. I think I'm failing. I fail probably every day. Like there's there's a moment almost every single day where where I'm either upset or scared or angry by something that I read and then I react to it. Um, and then I catch myself and I'm then I feel bad about it and I'm like, oh god, I gotta stop this and let me put down Twitter for a minute. But then I'm back on it in five <laughs> minutes. Uh, it's really just hard. I think there are a lot of people who are trying their best and I think that they're doing reasonably well compared to their contemporaries but um yeah it's, it's really 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 hard we have some of the i just i it's just like some of the stickiest poison that has ever been produced mm. and then how does that shape so if everybody's angry and if everybody's being triggered all the time and and uh outraged how does that shape our actions how does it contribute to actions that well, I think in a world where we are both afraid of the other and bombarded with these terrifying stories of the other every day, and in a world where there, like Christianity is now pretty much collapsed and nationalism is now not only collapsed, but suddenly the word nationalism is also evil. You can't even say that you are a nationalist. Um, that means that we have no collective identity. So everyone is retreating to these really fractious um, tribal identities. Uh, they started political broadly, right and left, but even those are breaking down. You see it on the left more than the right right now, but you'll see it on the right as well. On the left, it's like very clear that uh, there's a huge difference between the neoliberal and the progressive and like the old school hippie and like the Bernie Sanders version of socialism and the Elizabeth Warren version of socialism. It's like th there are all these tr tribal identities that are forming politically. We've, I think we're retreating into politics um, and politics are just naturally much more divisive than something like uh, religion. Um, which sounds crazy because we've had you know this history of religious wars and mm. uh, and and we've had this history even in national obviously nationalism was a huge problem during World War II. It's what drove I think a lot of it. But um, external fighting is just a very different beast than like looking inward. Mm. Right now we're fighting with ourselves, and that is really frightening to me. So uh, I want to pull back to one thing you said. You said Christianity is descending, um, and 
I, I want to understand more about where that comes from and where, where, your, where your knowledge on that is. Because I see a different thing happening. I see that essentially technology and kind of mass consumer culture is starting to trend young people into a re-religiosity more but a re kind of spirituality as well yeah so um, i i didn't say that religion was over i said that i think christianity. that christianity this yeah. collective group religion uh, that we had yeah. in america you know you're pretty protestant then in 20th century you had all these catholics but for the most part it was like 90 something percent of the, of the people in the country were christian like really believed in it um it doesn't if, if everyone I, I agree that i, I think that people have a it seems, who knows, I mean, but it, it does just seem, This is there's no data behind this, just my feeling on the issue is that uh, it, it seems like there's something that draws people fairly naturally towards religion. Um, and without these formal religions, yeah, I agree they're finding religion in other places. For example, I think the far left has found religion in nature. There's like a, a strong religious obsession with and I'm using air quotes here, the natural world, and this perception that humans are in some ways at odds with the natural world, even though we were created naturally. Um, it sounds, it's like deeply, it's just obviously deeply religious. It's like religious myth is what we're dealing with here. Um, and then what is a belief in aliens? What is a belief that aliens have visited us? More people believe that aliens have visited planet earth than go to church every week in america that's a huge deal and i think that it's absolutely a religion uh -huh. um all of these things are it's like the alien stuff the nature stuff um i think even on the right you have this sort of belief in american exceptionalism that in every single case we're better than everybody it's like a really intense almost religious optimism uh, about us and our, our innate goodness and I love America, but I don't think we're innately good. I think that we're as good as the things that we do and believe, and all that feels pretty shaky right now. But mm -hmm. these are religious ideas. Um, yeah, they're, we're just finding it elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And it's not in the church every Sunday where everybody kind of comes together to gather to hear the guy talk about it. It's like all the time you yeah. know, on Facebook, we're just finding these beliefs that we believe in reflected back to us yeah of course i mean because they're so different that they're all at odds with each other and so you know we're at 24 7 ideological warfare online every day and it is in some senses i think religious war hmm. where is burning man's place in this um burning man so i love burning man i i loved going and just seeing people build a city that was really cool i thought that was just amazing that we could do something like that but at the end of the day burning man is for the elites it is, it is like, this is not something that everybody is experiencing. It's really expensive to get there. It's really hard to get there. You go there, you do a ton of drugs and you party. And it's like, it's, that's just extremely, there's like a very small percentage of the people in the country that can afford to, to go off and do something like that. Um, it doesn't feel, uh, I don't, it doesn't feel like there's like a wider trend or anything happening there. So you don't feel, you don't see that like somebody, cause I had a conversation with somebody in Singapore who had never been to Burning Man, but all of his liberal friends in, 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 in Singapore had been to Burning Man and that had kind of reflected into their culture now. And that's what I see is happening. Did it? What are the things that have reflected? What specific uh, things have they brought back? Kind of. So I would say it's, 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 uh, so for him, it was something like just kind of a liberal. So Singapore is a pretty conservative place in terms of their values and homosexuality and all these different things. And in, in their group uh those things are are changing basically. but did they really go to burning man to learn about these things or did they go to burning man because they already believed in these things that yeah it could be very well that yeah that's all it's like peacocking a belief that already exists mm. 
And then Burning Man is just like the gathering point for mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Which is cool. And I love Burning Man. Yeah. Down, I mean, it's fucking awesome. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think that it's having any kind of outsized impact on our culture. Interesting. Um, and then let's go to the AI question because it seems like AI is the most, the biggest technological boogeyman outside of nuclear weapons. Would you agree? Uh, yes. It's different because the AI fears that we have are um, completely, and I'm not saying they're impossible, but right now they're fictional, that we're afraid of a certain kind of AI that doesn't yet exist, whereas the fears that we have in nuclear currently exist. Mm. Um, like the thing that we're afraid of, or the capabilities that we're afraid of currently exist. In AI, uh, I, I don't think the average person is afraid of like the AI that, helps you find a really good bathing suit on Instagram. You know, like that's not what people are afraid of. They're afraid of, they're afraid of Terminator. They're afraid of Skynet. They're afraid of like a computer that wants things. And, um, that I think is a fear of replacement. I, I, I mean, I haven't thought much beyond that cause it always just seemed like that was just it. There's like this probably, very deeply rooted fear in us of more intelligent things. Intelligence is our edge against every other animal on the planet. So if something else was smarter than us, yeah, that's really scary. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if it, if it, if it has willpower, Yeah, if it has its own sentience or its own wants and desires separate from ours. Yeah. I think desire for me, I, that's everyone in the world, anyone who's interested in AI, they like draw lines in their own places, I feel, of like sort of what we're talking about. They define it in their own ways. For me, the difference, it's like, does this computer want something? Does it desire its own thing? Obviously, we have AI now that is capable of doing things without us, but but we have to tell it what, what to want. Now, I have friends who are like, but what is free will? Like, it's, a, it's an illusion. It's like, we're just programmed. To, we don't actually want anything and all this kind of stuff. Okay, well, let's table all of that, like, really esoteric, abstract philosophy. Like, I think we all, like, I want right now, I'm, like, kind of hungry. I want to eat something. Um, I want specifically a certain kind of food, right? Like, uh, we know we know it. We know it when we see it. And and that's what I'm talking about. That's the thing that people are really scared of. They're scared of, they're scared of computers that want things. And that's especially. Um, yeah, I haven't seen any, we don't even know why we want things. So how are we going to build a computer that wants things? Like I moved out here 10 years ago, no, um, sorry, nine years ago, uh, as of this month. And when I got here, I think Ray Kurzweil's book was already almost 10 years old. I think, uh, got to go back and check the exact date on that, but it was already like not like a brand new book. And People, though, were still, I mean, we were really talking about the singularity and they were talking about a, a general artificial intelligence. They were People back then in San Francisco were talking about an AI that wanted things. Today, 10 years later almost, we're not talking about that at all. No one is talking about artificial uh, or general AI. People are talking about, um, you know, maybe AI in a weapon system, automated weaponry and things like this. It's a much more grounded um it's a much more grounded vision because I think that we've just had like no progress in uh, on the general AI stuff on uh, we've had no new insights into the mind or why it works or how it works, why we want things, what desire is, what really separates us from animals. Like how are we supposed to program this like into a machine if 
if we don't understand the questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so yeah, like we, it's like the conversation has totally shifted away from that because um, one, there's been no progress. Two, we just we, I think we're all sort of a little more aware now of our ignorance. Mm-hmm. This kind of reminds me of the book, The Book of Why. Have you, have you read that at mm-hmm. all? Uh, so it talks about the ladder of causality, and it's all about how basically how uh, this professor has started to ask, set up the equations in the right way of actually exploring questions that have to do with why as opposed to how. Uh, and so it talks about a ladder, ladder of causality, and that first rung of the ladder is what machines are able to do now, which is association just seeing. The same thing as like animals, they can just see. Uh, and then it goes up to um, uh, uh, actually asking counterfactuals, like what would happen if we went back in time using our imagination, because that's that's what separates us. That's what she argues. He argues is separates us from other animals, is we have this capacity to imagine into the future, into the past, and then build like mental models of what a a, a separate future would look like. Um, and then this professor is saying that that is the that is the way to general artificial intelligence basically but in a long in a long time is, basically so what would that look like incrementally uh well so there's three ladders and i'm i'm, I'm missing the second one I'm, I'm not remembering the second one so the, the the first one is association that's just basically the analogy there is seeing things seeing as they are uh and then the the second one i can't remember but then the third one is an imagination so it's like uh, and building that into a statistical language so that that uh, so probability for the last 70 years, it's been it's been a faux pas to essentially talk about uh, causality in, in in statistics. They haven't done it, and so now this professor is basically bringing a mathematical language to the question of why, and then it uh, and also bring so and it's also based on Bayesian networks. And I don't know, I I still don't understand what a Bayesian network is, but. Uh, and that's, but that's the, these are the initial steps basically, but I don't, I don't know. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I would like to see people care a little more about this. If for no other reason than, I think that what got me so excited about the AI stuff was just this question of, of us actually, like we were, we were trying in some way to understand ourselves Mm -hmm. and I'm just like a very sort of incurably introspective person (laughs) and I am curious about why we are the way we are and 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 what we could be and human potential I would say that's like my my big thing that I really care about Mm. the question of what we could be Mm. what does introspection mean to you um I would say sort of like inward looking and then self analysis and sort of like observing the things that make you what you are in terms of experiences or maybe just perhaps impulses and then um, trying to understand how those things relate to your life and then hopefully in so doing being able to rework some of those um, maybe not the experiences right those happen but like could you free yourself of them maybe like reprogram yourself in some way to uh achieve things that you weren't previously capable of achieving Mm. so essentially reconditioning yourself Mm -hmm. um and what could we be and you know i'll give i want to give some more context to this question like what could we be what is our potential as a species uh and if there are these forces at work that are like larger than us uh what 
is it still possible that we can be those things that, that you want, to, want us to be? Well, I mean, I think on some level we've regressed. Like we had an entire generation of geniuses producing artwork that we're still observing today as like the pinnacle of human, exp- of, uh, of, of, of human expression when they were teenagers in the Renaissance, these people started, started creating work like that. Um, we have a whole history of musicians and thinkers. I mean, how young were the founding fathers of America, right? Like were, how many of them were older than 30? Not many. Uh, there were a handful, um, when they really started working on this, these were that, and, and that to me, that wasn't an exercise in war. That was an exercise in philosophy. And that was, uh, a certain, that there was like a level of philosophical achievement that was capable even a few hundred years ago among our learning class that is not possible today, or at least it's not normal. And I would say and there's this, people are always saying like, it's almost a truism to say that, oh, well, pe- people are dumber now than they used to be. That's not really true. So I think that actually the average person is much smarter, much at least much more educated, much more well-educated. The problem is that our smartest people are dumber than they used to be. Our smartest people 300 years ago were much smarter. They were much more learned. They were much more capable. Um, they were much more productive than our smartest people today who, well, for the most part, are going to things like Burning Man. Like that's where they're applying their energy. Um, our sort of failure is the failure of aristocracy. Our, 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 I don't think the problem is that is that you have in a society a group of people who are more capable than the rest. The problem is when that group of people suck, and that's currently our 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 problem is not that some people are more capable or have more than others. It's like they should be much more capable. Our smartest and best should be ten times better than the average person. They should be you know studying every day and producing work every day and not getting caught up on bullshit. dumb Twitter bullshit, which I'm saying out loud to myself because <laughs> I'm really hoping that I can free myself from this shit and. And be better. I want to be better. And it's just it's really hard in in this in this world is really hard. There are distractions everywhere you look. Yeah. Uh, and the the platforms have been built in order to distract you. Yeah, it's not just techn- it's not just like the technology platforms, right? It's like I mean I think the way that we eat is it is is really messed up. I think this our eating habits just from everything from like like how much we eat to when we eat to the kinds of things we eat, like there's processed shit everywhere there's sugar everywhere um we have a crazy drinking culture where you're expected if you want to just catch up with a friend you're expected to go out and drink with them um it's it's like in san francisco people will demonize cigarettes but how many people do you know who are doing cocaine right now because it seems like a lot it seems like it's gone way up i've never seen so many drugs in san francisco i'm gay so also it's like it's like 10 times worse it's like casual MDMA, casual ketamine use, casual um, uh, cocaine use. Like there's a line, if you go to a gay bar, there's a line out of the door so people can walk in and snort a bump of coke in the bathroom stall. Like that's wild, Mm. the the level of of drug use that we're looking at right now. Mm. And so all these things, not only the drugs, but also the sugar, which is another form of drug, the the technology platform, all of these things are basically wasted potential on the on the uh, intellectual elite. Yeah, I think so. And you know, I want to not. I don't believe that we're just supposed to be these robots producing, mm. you know, beautiful poetry or something. Like that's <laughs> not my vision of the future. Happiness is something that people really care about, and I just don't think that this world is making us happy. 
I think that, you know, the Steven Pinkers of the world want to go on and on about how everything's great. That's their whole thesis is, is everyone's miserable, but actually everything's great. It's like, how is this helpful at all? If, how is it helpful to look someone in the face and be like, I know you're depressed, but you shouldn't be. What? That's crazy. This is not useful. If people are miserable, there's probably a reason. So let's try and understand what that reason is and fix it because that misery is like, it is real. There's a scene in or a moment in Harry Potter um, in the last book when uh, Harry he's visited by Dumbledore um, after he kills Voldemort and he's unconscious and they have this whole touching conversation and Harry at one point goes like um, this is is this all in my head and Dumbledore who's dead is like, yeah, of course it's in your head. But does that really matter? <laughs> it doesn't, because we live inside of our heads. Like, if people are feeling these things, if, the, if this is their experience in the world, then there's a problem, and we have to fix that. So to me, that means that we live in this, the, I want to go back to this question of the founding fathers and how young they were when they were starting to be prolific. And, and you know, in the Renaissance, basically the knowledge was such a small thing. There was yeah. like, there was, yeah, it was just like the realm of what we knew was so small that it would be unable to. You could, could learn a little bit about everything or a lot. You could learn a lot about everything. Yeah. And then now it's like impossible to do that. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people feel overwhelmed, um, and that's something I think about a lot because it's like I've got this, you know, I got this internet where I can just kind of I can open it up and I can just explore the far-reaching reaches of biology and kind of understand all these things. And but I need to build it up day by day. So I need to learn vocabulary, and then that vocabulary needs to build a mental model, and then I can then build out that model of like what is RNA and what is DNA and what are all those different things. Um, but it's overwhelming in a certain sense as well because there's just like I will never get to the point where I can absorb it all. I'll never. So what am I doing it for? You know, my goal is probably not to model at all, um, but it's to find information that one w- will be valuable at some point in my life, right? Yeah, I think it's there are two things happening there that are st- that are preventing us from progressing uh, at the clip that we once did. One that is something I think you were just alluding to. It's very very difficult now to have cross disciplinary discoveries because every single branch of knowledge is so specific mm. and so um, cloistered off now. Once it becomes that specific, there's all this knowledge you, you have to learn, this institutional knowledge you have to pick up before you can even start to participate. You start to build up like a little cloister around that, these like walled gardens everywhere. Um, and then two, I think, um, related in every single one of those specific branches of knowledge where there are all these just tons of rules and tons of things you have to learn before you can even start um, thinking freely in those spaces. Like, let's talk about physics, for example. How much do you have to know in physics to, to, to meaningfully contribute to the field? Like, so much. Years and years and years and years of studying. Um, I think that you can get really bogged down with the rules 
uh, and the facts and like the things that have to be known. You know, when you go to school for 10 years to study up to, you know, quantum physics, by the end of those 10 years, are you not trained not only to know about quantum physics, but you're trained in a very specific way of thinking about stuff, which is like, it's like there are, there are facts out there and I'm here to absorb them. In a way, I think it might shut off your intuition and probably most of the incredible scientific discoveries in the world were either accidents or intuitive. Mm-hmm. There, there are not many that we like mathed yeah. our way to. Yeah. Um, I think that that, we're like, there's, we're afraid of intuition because it feels so magical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I don't think that you can discount its importance in the history of discovery. And that's, I mean, a lot of the discoverers, you know, people in the 1700s, 1800s were, had just money and they were the aristocrat and they were just, you know, could kind of do whatever they wanted throughout the day and were totally motivated by curiosity, Mm -hmm. which seems like very rare today. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think that's, I actually haven't thought much about the aristocratic legacy in the sciences. That's true. Yeah, Mm -hmm. you, you could really, and also in the arts, I mean, there were a lot of really just well-off people who went into the arts and or just had these incredibly wealthy patrons. So like the Catholic Church would give just like tons of money to Michelangelo or whatever and he would go out there and be carving these incredible mm. statues. Um, but yeah, there was something about, I don't know, it's like we, maybe we think about career in a, in a way that's unhelpful or unhealthy as well. Specialization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Specialization everywhere and every single, even the way that we think about ourselves where you're a kid and they're like what do you want to be when you grow up and the expectation is you're supposed to say like police officer mayor Mm. grocer like farmer like these very archetypical things and it's like um no like i want to be a person like i am i want to be a i was a boy now i want to be a man what does it mean to be a man it's like that's that you you shouldn't be reduced to this one specific function like my job at founders fund i work on brand and community stuff like i don't even know what to call myself a lot of the times <laughs> like I, I run brand and community but 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 that's not a thing that anyone would have thought of when you were a kid that's like something that i do they're like abilities that i have and so i do them for this firm yeah. and it is successful like i am i'm achieving things on their behalf and like we're making you know we're generating deal flow from it and things like this but um it's like a really weird thing that I found myself in that I, I, uh, you know, in some sense it's a career that I like built myself for myself. It's certainly a job that I built for myself at Founders Fund. I don't, I don't know, like you can't, there's not really a ladder to the really profound sorts of, of achievement, which I've not yet, I don't think I've yet gotten there. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm like looking for those, but there's no ladder to that. You're not gonna, mm-hmm. you're not gonna start at the bottom and work your way um, position by position up to like profound ex- experience or or productivity or achievement change, or whatever yeah. else change yeah. like those things the really remarkable things the, the really new things the really inspiring things you just go out and you do them mm-hmm. and they're different than anything that's ever been done before yeah. um yeah there's a point that you mentioned which is really interesting i hadn't thought about before which is that all of these jobs that we are told to aspire to or place ourselves as kids uh are all products of the last 50 years. Like they're the professionalization and, and administration class basically that just didn't exist beforehand. Like they're totally new inventions in our in our evolutionary history, which is really interesting, except for the farmer one, that was the one, you know, that was the one everyone was gonna do. Uh, and there was no choice. Uh, and now, now there's choice. 
and now their choice seems to be disappearing. Maybe not. Maybe it isn't. But it, at least maybe in America, the the growth, you know, our growth, maybe not. We not, might not be seeing the same types of growth that we've seen in the last fifty years. China's seen that growth. They're developing that kind of administrative class, but we are not having that anymore. Um, and then and then bringing this technology piece, and comment on this if you if you want. But also, I wanted to ask in this realm of like super productivity, super effectiveness, uh, this kind of aristocratic kind of thing, whether we can bring that back, what is the role of technology in that as well? Like is technology bringing a feedback loop back to make some people more effective and more productive? Well, I think that, yeah, it is this weird paradox because technology like we have today in the hands of someone like Da Vinci should have been, I mean, like world altering. Well, I guess he was world altering, but I mean, like at a a magnitude, like almost unfathomable. Um, And here we are with all these tools and we we're not even achieving. They're all distracted. Individuals are not even achieving a 10th of what he achieved in his lifetime. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, yes, the capability is there, but clearly there's something baked into the capability that also hinders us or perhaps not. Perhaps it's a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. We have this technology, but our culture separate from the technology is keeping us from achieving. Um, Separate from the culture is distracting us. Separate from the culture is driving us to do things that are unhealthy um, or unproductive. I think that this comes down to the stories that we ingest Mm -hmm. on a day-to-day basis. I, I really believe I really believe that like the stories you tell about yourself determine the shape of your whole entire life, and we learn to model our stories after the stories that we're picking up from television and movies and books, comic books, whatever else. Um, so you you always want to look at that at like the the brain food. Mm. What are we eating? And right now it's like. Dribble. Well, I mean, you have the whole reality television thing. Yeah. Uh, you have what superheroes you have um i guess i mean what else are even the big genres right now Uh it's like you you have really tortured like literary fiction and that's the stuff that wins all of the oscars and stuff like when it's when it's filmed anything that's brutal and about how terrible humans are and how like pain is beauty and everyone's a victim like all that shit that's what wins awards Mm -hmm. that's prestige Mm -hmm. It's prestigious mm-hmm. to, to be a, to, to be victimized and to survive the horrible things and to kind of like live in that and sit in that and draw conclusions about humanity from that. Um, what sells, but what's not prestigious, are superhero movies. Mm. Everybody wants to be <laughs> a good person who saves the world. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good sign, actually. Yeah. I think it's like a really healthy sign that the average person just wants to protect humans um, and like save the damsel in distress and like be a good person uh but even in our superhero movies you're starting to see chinks in the armor like the idea of um like a batman who kills people that's really messed up that, that should that, that's like a huge change um a, a su- superman i think one of one of superman's superpowers was his moral goodness it was like unimpeachable like there was nothing about him that was bad he always made the right choice uh which is hard to do when you're that powerful 
you can do anything. It was a really interesting model for Americans, I think, mm-hmm. when you know he came of age in the early 20th century. Um, we went on after that to what win World War II, and then for the first time in history, Americans Americans didn't install any puppet governments. We didn't take any territory. Um, this is like if in any time before World War II, had a country just like completely won the war single-handedly. We had we had a, a navy that was bigger than every single navy on the planet combined. We had nuclear weapons when no one else did. We could have done anything. We could have taken Europe, all of it. We could have been like, you're a state, you're, these are states now. We're in charge of everything. No one could have stopped us. And we did not. There was zero interest here in doing that. Um, that to me, that's, that's a kind of super morality that we learned I think maybe from Superman. <laughs> you know, we pick this stuff up from somewhere. Yeah, well, that goes back again to the question you asked me about something else, which was that was it the morality picked up from Superman or was it the morality that informed Superman? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it's true. I mean, I think that, that these things start in the ether almost. It's yeah. like people sort of believe something and then the stories, I don't, I, I think that this, a lot of the time the stories that we tell are not, you know, they're not popping up out of the clam like, Botticelli's Venus or whatever mm-hmm. out of the ocean fully formed mm-hmm. yeah they're definitely coming from somewhere but then the, the, the story crystallizes that into something that can be distributed uh, it's like really comp- super 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 compressed knowledge mm-hmm. that we then pass on to each other and when we obsess over it that's like re- religious fervor mm-hmm. and it bonds us together and we're like these are our shared experiences these stories are our stories that's a really interesting point because it's super compressed information that gets transmitted almost subconsciously from person to person. Like we can, we, we hear the story, it feels great, we're entertained, we, like we bring it into our, our system, but then we cannot fully rep- represent that. In, I can't tell a story about exactly what it did to me. Mm-hmm. It's like beyond, it's so primal. Well, you don't have to because you can just tell the story of Superman and if it resonates with someone, it resonates in the same way. Mm-hmm. That's that's this is just how we this is how we've always passed on tons of information in in short doses. So then, how do we mold the intellectual elite in order to start creating at a very high level, so that maybe we can solve some of these problems that we're facing as a species? Um. Well, I think like we just sort of were talking about before, these stories don't come from nowhere. They kind of are picked up from the ether and then crystallized and. R- right now mm. there's not much that's worth crystallizing into a story these people are wasteful and unproductive they don't believe in anything there's like they believe in nothing mm. almost it's like almost cool to to be to believe in nothing to be like oh you believe in stuff what a loser <laughs> like oh like this is like a pox in all their houses politics when people are like all every single person running is or not every single person running but all people who run are terrible for political office and like all politics are terrible and all politicians are and there is like some kernel of truth to that like mm-hmm. like I think that it takes a certain kind of person to run for office and that's a kind of person I'm naturally suspicious of um, someone who wants a lot of power over people but but to say that there's like no political philosophy that would work I mean that's just obviously not true there are some that are better than others we can just look around and like pick up a history book and see like which things are working and which things are not like we can make judgments on things there are good things and there are bad things like we have to but we have to believe in something before we tell a story that's going to bring us all together like we have to actually believe in shit yeah. and um, for the story to work we, we have to both believe in something 
bigger than us and we have to want something for us. Um, and it's really unclear that our most capable people today are capable of those things. I think we have a lot of people working on stuff productively and we have a lot of amazing people working on things in science, technology, in art, um, a lot of great writers out there, but they're all sort of siloed off. There's not really much of a movement. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know what the thing is that like kind of binds us all together and makes us want to be great alongside of one another today. I don't know what that is. I want to find it, but I, I'm not sure. Well, it seems like it needs a kind of prerequisite of belief in order for it to even, it, from what you're saying, it sounds like you need belief in order for the story to work, basically. Yeah, and I think the ground floor belief is just that people are good and worth, yeah. like, it's worth it for us to keep moving on into the world. And right now, we have competing narratives that are sort of mm. competing, very popular competing narratives um, to that pre-existing belief, uh, sort of like anti-humanism stuff. Um, people are a virus. Wherever we go, we destroy things. Like the, it, you see this all the time in um, environmental conversations, where it's never framed as like, "How do we make a better world for people?" It's always framed as like, "Wow, people have really destroyed the world, and without us, the world would be perfect." It's like, no, without us, we, like, what matters? Why do we care what what the world looks like without us? That's crazy. Like, does the natural world have some some kind of like innate goodness? That no, of course not. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Why are we even bothering imagining a world without us? That's absolute insanity. We're people. We, our, my existence is like, that's like my ground floor requirement. You thinking that we have a right to exist is my ground floor <laughs> re requirement for us to be able to have a conversation. Um, you see this most starkly in the Mars conversation right now. Uh, the internet recently blew up in certain circles, not for most people, <laughs> but in certain circles over the question of whether or not... Um, people should be going to Mars because we might infect the planet. There's nothing on Mars to infect. It's a fucking rock. What do you mean infect it? Like, who who cares? It is crazy. It is absolute madness that people care about this. Um, and that is, the, the, like, but that madness is coming from, it's like a very well-storied madness. There's There are a lot of Hollywood tropes and, like, literary tropes that concern the innate badness of people, the dirtiness of us, uh, the, the, our ability to infect whatever we touch. Um, that's really, I think, almost metastasized at this point. It's very dangerous. Mm -hmm. And the two biggest ones for me, uh, The Matrix and Fight Club, those were two movies where those were like, those were the theme. I know it's crazy because those two movies are two of my, my favorite movies. <laughs> yeah. And they were two of my favorite movies as a kid. Yeah. I think with The Matrix, so this is truly the thing. I mean, people talk about, they talk about humans as a virus and it's always like, yes, well this, literally came from the matrix the supervillain said it yeah. uh, and i think i think that's what you need to maybe keep in mind at least for the matrix is like the bad guys were the ones that thought this stuff yeah. it was the the really really evil people were the ones that said it it's just that that was created at a time when the message that resonated was not like the christ analogy of neo it was the it was the supervillain telling humans that we were terrible and toxic and created you know, horrible things and whatnot. Another one is uh, Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six. That I haven't a, I haven't read that one. Yeah, it was basically about. Uh, it was right before 9/11. It was before 9/11, but after it was clear that Islamo-terrorism was going to start making big big changes. And they, then Tom Clancy wrote this book about how it wasn't uh, Islamo-terrorists. It was actually like uh, 
bioterrorists so that they were going to engineer something that would destroy 99% of the people on the planet mm-hmm. uh, and then leave this 1% who has the antidote uh, to because we were a disease and virus and, and we needed to do this in order to, to save the planet. Yeah, this is this has a very long history. It goes all the way back to Thomas Malthus yeah. uh, and just a belief that at least at least I'm going to give Malthus a little bit of credit. At least his entire for anti-humanist framework at its core was still like how do we make a world that is the best for the most amount of people like what's the largest number of people that we can that that we can support in the best way possible it was still even though i mean it was horrific and actually malthusian philosophy and practice results in genocide almost always Mm -hmm. You could at least tell. You could at least say that, like he maybe his intentions were good. Like they they were. In, he thought maybe he was a humanist. But today we don't even have that. It's like no people are just bad. Like they're actually bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. And where have I heard that before? Uh, well, church, original sin. <laughs> yeah. Like that's where I heard it before. It's crazy when you have people just moralizing to you um, uh, under this sort of auspices of intellectualism or something and it's like not that it's like no you have just a really dark apocalypse faith and i'm not interested in it Mm. interesting do you read any cyberpunk i have read some books that are called cyberpunk books (laughs) i wouldn't say i'm not like a huge i'm not like i don't know i don't know i don't know what i would i don't know how many books i would have to read before i'm like consider yourself part of that identity uh well i I find like what this in context of our conversation, particularly science fiction and, and uh, um, literature and thought and science that because cyberpunk it basically takes from this like 1970s, 1980s, the rise of the Internet and what the Internet does. And it's decidedly dystopian, uh, uh, yeah. which is really interesting. Um, yeah. All of our science fiction now is pretty much like it starts there. Mm-hmm. Um and that just, I mean, this is just the, it's the last stop on a train that we've been riding for many decades. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just, this is just what we think about the future now. Mm-hmm. It's really, really dark. It's like, obviously going to be dark. There are a few exceptions to this. Um, they're very rare. Do you see them? I think actually a really good example is Her, that mm-hmm. movie Her. Yep. Um, but that movie was not very popular. And uh, I guess you could say you, you could say that superhero movies are in some sense um, like a positive take on science fiction. Certainly, like human potential, you see you see that story there. But no, like most of what we think of in, in terms of science fiction, both in literature and in television and film, it's all pretty dark. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, <laughs> it's me but. Uh... But uh, yeah, it's probably good to wrap it up now. But uh, kind of for our listeners listening to this conversation, what would be the most thing that they could draw, most important thing they could draw from this conversation? Well, I think, um, you know, there are these broad narratives that we tell as a culture, these cultural narratives that we have. But separate from that, we all tell a story about ourselves. Um, That's something that I am really trying to remember these days. Uh, This you you do just have a sense of yourself and that sense of yourself determines everything that you're capable of so you have to look inward and see like what is the story that i'm telling about myself my successes where i've come from what that means where i'm going um and if it's a dark story you got to change it you have to tell a different story that's 
easier said than done, buy a journal, start writing every day, but seriously, like pay attention to the narratives that you consume, pay attention to the stories that you tell about yourself to your friends, um, on dates, uh, pay attention to the stories that other people want you to consume. Mm -hmm. I think that the stories that people want you to like tell you a lot more about them than the story. Um, I, I think that, yeah, just be aware of the role that story plays in our life because I think it is just like the most powerful thing. Mm. And it's ingrained so deeply. Uh, well, cool. How can people find out more about you and Congressman? Uh, well, you can just follow me on Twitter, um, Mick Solana, M-I-C-S-O-L-A-N-A. Uh, yeah, check it, check it out. Check out my podcast, Anatomy of Next. It's one of my podcasts. I got a couple more in the works. But yeah, Twitter's probably like where I do most of my damage. So Cool. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this episode with Mike Solando from Founders Fund. I am publishing episodes every day because I've got about 60 episodes on queue. Uh, so you can look out for new episodes pretty much every day. Um, I am pretty broad in my interests. So my interests are going pretty far and wide. Uh, and I try to, in the description, try to give enough information to figure out whether somebody will uh, benefit from tuning into this episode. I am on my own here, so I'm doing all of this on my own, all the editing, all the recording, all of the reaching out to guests. Um, and so I don't have the resources yet to do a lot of like intense editing and you know make it all sound perfect. Um, and so if you are interested in helping out, I am accepting donations on Patreon at Stuart Alsop III, or you can search for Crazy Wisdom on Patreon. Uh, I also offer free breathwork sessions in exchange for being a Patreon. Uh, so you can come and join us for breathwork sessions delivered on Zoom every day, about three or four times a day. I do breathwork sessions on Zoom. So if you become a patron uh, at Crazy Wisdom, you get access to these breathwork sessions as well. And I'd really appreciate the support, any support you can give. Um, I love doing this podcast. I want to continue to doing it far in the future and bringing crazy wisdom to everybody because, you know, this transition that we're facing towards the a species being connected by the internet is going to be a stressful one. It's going to be very, very stressful. Um, and the techniques that have come before us may not necessarily work for this new era that we are descending into or maybe ascending into. So my aim with this podcast is to get the people who are thinking most differently to express how they're working with it, how they're working with this transition that we're all going through, and then get the learnings out there to everybody else who is also interested in figuring out how can I come into a better relationship uh, with this transition that this entire species is going under. So with that, I hope you enjoy this episode, and please come again tomorrow. I'll have a new episode up tomorrow. Thanks.